you're listening to Planet Pod, the podcast for everyone who cares about the planet. Hello and welcome to Planet Pod. I'm Amanda Carpenter. And today we're musing on whether life imitates art or art imitates life, or whether art can affect us in terms of how we behave um, around sustainability and our care for the planet. And I'm delighted to be joined in the studio by my guest co-host, Julie Flower. You may remember Julie joined us for a pod recently on behaviour change and she was so fab. I've been persuaded to come back and co-host. So Julie, welcome. Thank you. Hello, Amanda. We have a fascinating show today um, as we're exploring just how much art, design, architecture, the built environment influence how we feel about the world and how we specifically can take action to um, reduce climate change and improve how we care for the planet. Um, We have two fascinating guests alongside my co-host who both bring very different experiences of art and design and how they impact behaviour. We have Michael Pinsky, who's an award-winning British artist um, whose international projects have created innovative and challenging works in galleries and public spaces. And most recently, Michael designed, developed and built and then exhibited his fabulous pollution pods. And those of us who are lucky enough to see them in the courtyard at Somerset House will never forget that experience. So, Michael, hello and welcome. Hello. And we also have Lynn Elvins, who comes from a slightly different background in terms of her skills around design. So she's a design strategist and she works with organisations um, to look at how they can get the best from the design and how that can create sustainable change. So Lynn, welcome to Planet Pod. Thank you. As regular listeners know, we like to kick off um, our shows with the good, the bad and the ugly slot. And this week I have one that I think meets all three. Um, So my good, bad and ugly is the news that a Finnish group called Melting Ice is raising money to create Carve, an over 100 foot high sculpture of Donald Trump's face into an iceberg. And they're calling it Project Trump More. And the idea is that they will then film the iceberg as it melts as an indication of how fast climate change is happening. So I think having Trump's face carved over 100 feet high into an iceberg that then melts is perfect, really, for good, bad and ugly. Julie, how about you? You got a good, bad or ugly? Mine's also about that sense of sort of imagery and how powerful that can be. I think this one's a positive one in the sense it really makes people think so it's an artist called Douglas Coupland sorry at the Vortex Institute in Vancouver who has tried to help people visualize the extent of plastic pollution in marine environments by filling a 500,000 litre aquarium with single-use plastic 
So, yes, I've just seen Amanda wince. Just that kind of emotional reaction. My goodness me, look at the sheer size of this. This is what this means. Obviously, it's a, it's a negative narrative on what's happening in the world, but actually in terms of positively enabling people to visualise what can be quite an amorphous concept, you know, just the sheer size and scale of pollution, it can only be a positive thing. Yeah, I think that's where this topic today is so strong and vibrant because a lot of this stuff feels like theory and having really tangible ways of watching climate change happen with melting ice caps or seeing plastic is is part of what drove your work isn't it Michael so have you a good bad and ugly you want to kick off with well since you both had good ones I'll follow with a, a bad and an ugly I think um, just about a couple of weeks ago I was on the radio and in the lift with Michael Gove um, who was then quickly separated from the rest of the people in the, <laughs> on the radio programme before we could strangle him. Um, and then I heard him yesterday talking about air pollution because there's a huge problem with wood burners and burning coal in houses. And this is uh, something that is really becoming fashionable now, again, mm. is to mm. have the wood burner in an urban setting. And... Uh, Michael Gove just refused to engage with this um, issue and it's, he's really passing the buck to the local councils to deal with this and there's no real clear government directive to deal with this. And of course our worry is with Brexit and without the European directives, where are we going to be with... Uh, the Michael Goves, who only get upset if Blue Planet 2 starts talking about plastic pollution, um, and then he'll do something about it. But what about real policy change? That's, that's uh, the bad and the ugly. Yeah, and I think we can top that with the news that, you know, once we've pulled out of Europe and dissociated ourselves with some of those really strong, powerful environmental pieces of legislation and guidance. The government's answer is to write you a stiff letter if you disobey the rules. So no fines, no penalties, no backing from our colleagues in Europe. I mean, shameful, really. Ooh, we're straying into politics here. It's getting good. Yeah. Lynn. I'm going to add uh, one on a very small scale, actually, which was on the, the tube as I came over. Uh, there was an advert that said, breathe in for as long as it takes to read this line and then breathe out for as long as it takes to read this line. Uh, it was an advert for a product which I won't name. Um, but for me, that was very fascinating in terms of on a very tiny scale, how pieces of design and graphics and visual items around us all the time can very directly make us do something on the spot uh, and although it doesn't have the scale impact of, of bigger projects um, it absolutely makes those change and I think those sometimes those little tiny changes that we get every day uh, you know are really important to, to remember as well. Yeah that's a really powerful example isn't it of, of, of message matching behaviour but also that link that we've talked about in the pod before around well-being and the climate and sustainability because you know breathing in and breathing out relatively slowly is actually very good for your well-being mm -hmm. and I think we've come to the conclusion you know guests who sat around this table that 
if you behave in a way that's better for your planet, for our planet, you are actually going to be improving your own well-being. And it isn't just really concrete things like not polluting, because that's obviously better for all of us. It's actually our whole approach to this issue of sustainability, environment, you know, managing the balance. So that's a fabulous one. Thank you. Um, did you breathe in and out? For Absolutely, as long as it did? I did. <laughs> Which is you know, testament to the fact that these th these things work. I suppose it depends how slow a reader you are, because if you're a very slow reader, that could be quite dangerous, could it? But but that was a brilliant one. Thank you, Lynn. That's you've obviously um, had a fascinating working life, and you've really spanned those disciplines between design and creativity. And, and corporate life and mm -hmm. big brands. And with your work as a design strategist, you've had experience, I think, of bringing really creative people into um, a design uh, background, <coughs> excuse me, environment. How does that work? What happens? Well, to me, I mean, great things happen when you bring really great creatives in to environments that work with, with companies in particular. Uh, a lot of uh, design work is is commissioned on a, a commercial basis. Uh, so it's for people who want to achieve certain things. But as soon as you connect uh, business people without stereotyping business people or without also stereotyping creatives, they often work in just very different ways. Um, and it's usually about timing. Uh, and it's also about just understanding that sort of first early stage thinking that goes on with any creative project or innovation area. Uh, which is about just exploring things very openly uh, with a great deal of uncertainty, which I think that's the biggest thing that often goes against the grain when you're working in a company where uncertainty can equal risk. Mm. So you want to manage uncertainty all the time. But if you want to go down a creative route or an innovative route, uh, you have to kind of embrace uncertainty and make some space for it. Is there friction between those two what seem to be quite different cultures. Yes, and often over time, uh, and often in a commercial sense because time equals money. Yeah. And so those two things start to play. So creatives will want more time uh, to think about options or to consider or reflect as well. I mean, reflection time is also very important in the creative process. Um, whereas I say, if you're paying for that time, uh, again, that can make people slightly fraught and they, they are often working to deadlines as well. So it is yeah, often about the timing that where the friction is, 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 comes into play the most. So how have you managed to persuade, you know, overtly commercial organisations where there's a bottom line, there's management of risk, there's a demand to deliver mm -hmm. within a, a particular time frame and against a budget to go with that creative process in order to create sustainable designs. I mean, talk us through, how, how would that work? I mean, how do you get them on side? Um, for me, usually it's starting with what they seem to think some designers are going to do. And so that's one of the biggest misperceptions, that we tend to think of design as the objects that we then see that come out of the end of the process. So, so the finished product. Exactly, a finished right. product, uh, a website, an app, uh, a piece of advertising, whatever it might be. Uh, so people tend to commission designers on the basis of, we'd like one of those. So they've already, if you like, taken a, a, what should be an open process. And if you like, they've come to the table with it already being very closed. Uh, we, we know what we want. We want one of those. Here's the budgets and here's the deadline. 
Uh, and to me, that cuts out the entire part of, of the exploring the problems. And so what I do with people initially is usually redefine a brief. So to get people to come back from the position of why, why have you decided that you need that? Why do you think a website will be a solution? Why do you think that uh, product will be the solution? Uh, and often if you come back from that, the area to be explored is much, much broader. Uh, and to me, what I'm also interested much more in is what will be the impact of what you're designing, rather than the focus is always on the tangible thing. You'd actually think they'd want to look at the impact, because presumably, particularly if you're looking at advertising design or a communications-based mm -hmm. campaign, it's what people do as a result of Absolutely. interacting with Absolutely. whatever it is been, that's been designed, isn't yep. it? So you're either trying to create change or change you know consumer habits so presumably that i would think that would be a main motivator but i guess people get hung up on an end product because they perhaps are frightened of the process of design they don't like the uncertainty or mm -hmm. they think creatives are over there and i'm yep. over here and i'm corporate and never the twain shall meet yep so, so so you're really i guess a facilitator but you're also a strategist so how much of the end result have you got in your mind all the way through all of it, really. So again, it's also not losing sight of that end goal, because I think in any, again, in any project that involves deadlines and things like that, those things then start to become the priorities. Yeah. So ca are we going to meet the deadline? Are we going to hand over these, these things? Are we going to meet, again, that very tangible point where something is going to happen? Um, and that's fine. That's very important in any design project to deliver. Um, and again, I think sometimes business people would say that's, that can be problematic with creatives uh, who, who, you know, maybe don't like fixed deadlines or, or aren't um, as clear on the timing structures that they've got. But it's, a, it's very easy then because everyone is focusing on that. The people involved on the project, that's important to them. And that's why that makes that important. Mm. But it, it's very easy to then lose sight ultimately of the, again, what I would call in commercial terms, the end user whether yeah. that's someone who's going to experience something, um, whether they're going to purchase something, whether you wish to change their mind, make them behave differently. And everyone needs to constantly be reminded that that is where success lies. Lynn, I love this idea of engaging everyone in creative problem solving and not just people who've got the word creative kind of on their badge, if you like. How far do you find that your techniques then help organisations in the future to sort of embed more of a creative problem-solving culture once the particular thing that you need to design has kind of mm -hmm. gone? How far can that be embedded? Um, again, I think that can be embedded because I would agree with you. You know, creativity, which is, is again, it works alongside design, but it is, it is also a different thing. Creativity doesn't belong to designers. It doesn't belong to creatives. Uh, there is a fantastic creative industry in the UK, but they don't hold the rights no. to being creative. We can all be creative. Uh, and I think, again, yes, there are set processes which you can use to just get people, to, if you like, to flex mm. that muscle. Uh, and this is something uh, where methods like design thinking and uh, and tools to take people through in order to just get more familiar and re-engage with that process, really. But that is something that everyone can do. And again, I would say the 
the big issue is is taking a step back and asking questions um, and not forgetting who you're creating something for. I think there is always a tendency uh, for all of us as well, which is very understandable. You know, we spend too much time sitting in meeting rooms making decisions uh, when often the impact is going to be out there in the world uh, with completely different sets of people. Uh, and we kind of forget to go and put ourselves in their shoes. Tell us a bit about the sustainability issue mapping tool. Have I got the yeah. terminology right there? Because yes. a lot of what you've done is about designing sustainable impacts, isn't it? So how does that work? What is it? So we created, along with a colleague of mine, Rupert Bassett, who was a fantastic designer. Uh, what we looked at at the time was the fact that there was all these terms around sustainable design. There's ethical design, there's environmental design. And we just felt that it was a very confusing landscape. Uh, and still today, I think, environmental designers or eco-designers or people who are more interested in the environmental impacts tend to congregate in one set of conferences, if you like. There's another set of conferences around social design. I think the, the professional design community prefer that because it's more people-orientated rather than environmental. It's much more measurement and, and again, science-orientated uh, sometimes. There is also the very commercial world of design, designing for measurable uh, sales, which again, you know, can be a very healthy discussion to have and can d drive a lot of very good design. And those three areas, we felt really mapped the triple bottom line, the economic, you know, the social and the environmental. And we were very keen to see those merge. But one of the things we really felt was missing from the triple bottom line was the value of desirability. Um, and the aesthetic side that, again, designers and creatives are very, very good at. They have huge talents in making things um, uh, connect through the desirability of them. And we often say this, you know, design things, they look nice. But it's also done as almost like it's a, a, a flippant phrase to use. Designers just make things look nice. But actually the skills to make something work and feel very nice in your hands or to attract your attention uh, when you're walking along, uh, or to feel comfortable if you sit in it. Um, those things are incredibly powerful and very, very valuable. Uh, and even if we reduce it to the end of, um, you know, making things look sexy, you know, again, which is all cool, which mm. we use a lot. But for me, I think those, those aspects to successful design have a role. So the other area of the map was about personal desirability, which mm. we felt was missing. Um, but within all of those four areas, there are lots of very specific techniques. So if you wish to design for disassembly on an environmental uh, basis, there's lots of specific techniques around that. When you say disassembly, mm. you mean taking the thing apart, the end of its life cycle Absolutely. and then reusing it? Yeah, yeah. which again is traditionally for the design community, designers were, are used to being trained on how to design something to be manufactured and put together. Uh, although there's a lot of work now on design for disassembly, they are not necessarily so focused on 20 years down the line or even three years down the line, will it be able to be taken apart, uh, which is almost counterintuitive to most designers. So yeah. that area in itself is, is just one area of environmental design, um, which for some projects is very, very relevant. But for other projects, it's maybe not relevant because you may not have something that's tangible. 
Yeah. Uh, so what we did with the mapping tool was to actually acknowledge that there were all of these different areas uh, and to help designers navigate their way around them, which ones are good to use for which type of projects. And I should think that there's huge crossover across all of those disciplines and areas. You say they're very different, but I should imagine there's areas where they are crossing over. And it's that interconnectedness yeah. that in a way develops the sustainability, isn't it? I mean, it's, you know, building something to last a long time that also fits, feels good, is nice to sit in. It also has a low environmental impact and, you know, it, it's economic and viable and yeah. beautiful and all of those things. So it's a real melding together, isn't it? Absolutely. And that, that was the other big thing that we said, that exactly as you said, that all pieces of design, truly sustainable design, should have a, a, a good viable economic impact. Uh, it should have social considerations. It should have environmental considerations. And it should look great and function mm. really well. Mm. Um, and that's really hard. Yeah. Um, which is why I like that. That's really complicated. It's, it's say it's not easy to do, but I think when it comes to sustainable design, what can happen in with the example of designing for disassembly, some of the conversations around sustainable design become very specific. And if you're not a designer that works around products and needs to understand dis, uh, design for disassembly, some people can then come to the conclusion, well, this is not for me. And so we wanted to have that very top level view of saying, actually, no, this should be something in every single piece of design. It's not just for some niche products or some types of designers. It's for all designers to think about. Fascinating, a kind of guiding principle. But Julie, this stuff's not new, is it? I mean, your background in art history and architecture and, you know, the breadth of the things that you, you've um, studied and understood over the years, some of this stuff was around 100, 200 years ago, this idea of long-term, good quality design, both beautiful and functional. Absolutely, and I think you only need to look back to John Ruskin and Morris and some of those involved in the arts and crafts movement who were really trying to meld a love of nature and all things natural and actually almost an innate spirit of conservation with functionality. And they were real proponents of this concept of truth to materials. So if they, I mean, I'm thinking now uh, of someone like CFA Voisey, arts and crafts designer and architect, who I've done quite a bit of work on. He very much believed that the materials should speak for themselves and was very keen to source things that were natural to the particular landscape that he was, say, building a building in and that he would do very little to these materials and yet they would still shine. So it would be about how maybe the stone naturally weathers, about the grain of the wood, and that was a very strong theme for him. Similarly with Ruskin and his writing around kind of the interconnectedness of art and nature, it was interesting, I found a lovely quote earlier from a chap called Robert Hewison, who said that Ruskin could see the Alps as a poet might, or in terms of the geological outlines. And I love that sense of artists being able to also see the scientific and the conservation elements of the landscape. And, and actually, these were big debates at the time, because when you think with the growth of industrialization, with the growth of cities, all of the issues that we started to touch on around air pollution, around um, how we use resources, and actually around the role of commerce 
were hugely important. And I think for certain designers like Voise, who essentially his architectural practice was based on building small country houses for the rising Victorian industrial classes, a massive tension there building a lovely holiday home so that the industrialist can get out of the smog of Manchester and go with his family and enjoy the beautiful views. A, a real tension there between making money and doing something that's that's good and that's beautiful. Mm. So, yeah, I think that's fascinating. And when you were talking, Lynn, about corporates and ideally trying to meld all the aspects of good design and sustainability it made me think of a particular gallery in Madrid which is run by one of the large banks Caixa it's called the Caixa Forum one could kind of fairly cynically think oh you know these big banks just wanting to show their corporate responsibility show all these beautiful artworks that no one else can afford to have but what they've done with their particular building is really fascinating because they've made one of the largest vertical gardens in an urban space and not only is it environmentally sustainable it's beautiful to look at it catches the eye and also it makes you think and that's really what I want to come down to when we talk to Michael around the artwork that you produce which is obviously designed to make people really think so what leads you to produce the art the art that you do I mean there's a strand in my practice that looks at um climate change in particular and uh, a few years ago I was asked to do a piece for central London um, looking at climate change and I chose to mark various monuments in the city with the point that the sea level will be in a thousand years um, and it's a very simple action physically you know I just put a blue band around these various Victorian columns and uh, is so that so I was using the the monument as a prop for my work really um, and what interested me about those monuments was they were built at this period of great expansion and a point where the industrial revolution was fueling the kind of imperial nature of Britain they both were happening with a kind of synergy at that time. And that's partly because Britain started to go beyond its own resources. The, the Industrial Revolution couldn't feed itself with the landscape it was within. It needed to work globally. And in a way that the world now uses more resources than the world can produce, um, at that time in history, Britain was using more resources than it could produce, so that, that fueled the colonies and, and reaching out. So I, I like that kind of juxtaposition of this mark and, and the, what the monument symbolised. Um, and then I went on to make some other pieces, and there's a piece for COP21, in Paris where I emptied the canals and then pulled out objects from the canal and mounted them on the surface in a way to discuss all of these objects that we have and that we try and hide. Um, so if you can't see it, it's not there. And this point of pulling it back out like a kind of ghost and presenting it back to the communities 
that had thrown it in there in the first place was quite important. This presents a huge challenge, presumably, to those who are witnessing and experiencing this art. I mean, actually, you're wanting to get an emotional reaction, but it may be quite a um, a visceral reaction, perhaps, from some communities. Kind of, how do you deal with that reaction? Well, uh, particularly with the, the piece in Paris, and I'd done this one before in Britain, like 10 years before, it's quite a kind of confrontational mm -hmm. action. And obviously I found bicycles and things like that in the, the canal. That wasn't surprising. But what was more surprising was finding a lot of single bed frames. And that started to make me think that they're probably there because of the immigration. Um, so people are moving through Paris, staying there for a couple of months mm -hmm. and then moving possibly further north, trying to get to the UK. And then people are left with their beds and they just throw them in the canal. And so it starts to raise lots of different narratives, submerged narratives in the city. And a certain psych psychology is revealed that way. And people see those objects, these kind of forlorn, abject objects, framed like a museal piece on water, um, touching disturbing, uncanny, uh, you know, these are the things that you don't necessarily want to meet on a dark night in Paris, <laughs> up north in the Saint-Martin Canal. Um, but it's through that that these Norwegian environmental psychologists discovered my work and they commissioned me to do a piece in Norway which they could study in more depth because they... Uh, we're interested in this idea that artists think that they can change people's behaviour, but there's no real empirical evidence to support that. Interesting. So what are they hoping to do with your work? Have, are they doing a study at the moment? Yes, so from that, they asked me to come up to Norway and work with them and discuss a potential artwork and then build one um, and so I, I suggested about 15, 20 ideas and we looked at the nuances which we thought would have an impact to the end user as you, from the data that they already had. And one thing that became very clear was that the only things that dramatically change people's behaviour are things that impact on their everyday life. And so these remote notions of a polar bear on a glacier melting, it's all very emotive, but it, people don't even know how to deal with that. I mean, what are they going to do? I'll rent a boat, I'll take it up north, I'll get the polar bear, give it a home in my back garden. <laughs> I mean, what, what is the action? So that made me think uh, eventually about air pollution having, because I, lived in, I live in London, and um, that impacts me on my everyday life. And so I started thinking about working with air pollution as a material, as an artistic medium. And that led to this project, the Pollution Pods. Oh, tell us a bit more about this. Um, well, so originally I was just thinking about spaces that we could move between. But that quickly moved on to the idea of domes. And then that moved on to geodesic domes because 
of Buckminster Fuller having such a big influence in design and thinking very early on about the ecological implications of design. And so I wanted to make this piece as a kind of homage to his dome. Um, and so originally I designed six, which have now become five geodesic domes that are connected uh, through tunnels. And I built that in Norway. And within each dome, you can experience the air pollution from a different city around the world. So what so, happens when people come out the other end, Michael? Because I've seen the domes and you walk through them and they are quite, um, I don't know how to describe it. I mean, they feel quite closed in, obviously, and you're very aware of the space you're in. So what happens when people come out the other end? Are they suddenly transformed in their understanding of pollution? I mean, is what's the data been so far? I mean, in terms of data, I've had to keep very separate from the researchers because otherwise I could influence that. So it's almost two parallel projects. Right. They've, they've got about 3,000 questionnaires that they are gathering the data, studying it, getting uh, rid of the white noise involved in that data and they'll be finished their first findings towards the end of this year and then it needs peer group reviewed and published and everything. I mean, in terms of my more anecdotal experience, people who came from London, who live in the middle of London, some of them went through and went, oh, this is not that bad, <laughs> you know. And then there are other people, a couple I met from the west of Ireland, who literally could not get through the domes. They tried both ways, you know, through London, through mm. San Paolo, and they couldn't get around. They were gagging. It was so bad. And... The, 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 what that made me realise was that it's an intensely personal experience and everyone's reaction is completely subjective and, and extremely different. It's also really interesting because it shows you what people get used to, isn't it? What becomes the new normal? And I suppose the risk that as air pollution gets worse, people just accept that's kind of how it is and almost begin not to notice it. I mean, how important is it for you as an artist, as well as someone who's interested in the, in the environment, that you can prove that you can affect people's behaviour? Um, well, just to go back to the habituation, I mean, the first domes, the Norwegian domes, so that's a kind of palate cleanser. And the idea when you go from one dome to another is you do have that instant mm. impact that you don't habituate to the air pollution because we are incredibly tolerant not just to air pollution but sound pollution it chips away at us over a long period of time but it's the people who come from outside who are really shocked um, in terms of the data I mean as a practicing artist I make work that I intuitively think is means something in the, in the canon of art history and that, that is the primary driver. Um, but to get a, an ongoing conversation with people who are actually looking at the psychology does impact on my work and does change my thoughts about how the audience or the visitors can experience the kind of things that I make. 
Lynn, that's incredibly important for the sort of work you're doing, isn't it? Mm. That idea of being able to evidence metrics, but also the experiential, the actual experience. Exactly, of, exactly. Of and for me as well, what you're talking about is, is, is also why artists, which obviously works slightly differently to designers, often because designers are working in that commercial sense, is when you talk about uncomfortableness. Um, and for me, around a lot of these discussions around sustainability, you know, there's a lot of uncomfortable truths that need to therefore be faced in order to make the change. I mean, I'm a great believer in, I think those are good things to unpack so that we can get on the other side of them. But companies struggle with that uncomfortableness um, because there is a risk, because brands are trying to make these sort of nice, comfortable relationships with their customers. So the idea that you would uh, raise that from a company, I think they, they find very difficult. Whereas the activist community and the artist community, uh, for me, have a, a hugely important role to play in doing that because there isn't that same relationship and, and, and you can bring in those uncomfortable areas. Um, and again, I think if, if, if companies were a little bit braver and, and sometimes if designers were a bit braver in certain circumstances to face those uncomfortableness and explore them rather than try and avoid yeah. them, um, we would get some much more creative and interesting results. It was fascinating, actually, because we, we, a little kind of anecdote, we put Michael, who's our, our subject, into a room full of senior lawyers and corporate um, individuals. And he talked through both the... Parisian um, exhibition and also the domes and people were visibly shocked I think particularly monuments they knew and loved like Nelson's column and and the monument seeing the level that the sea would be at in a thousand and you could feel the discomfort in yeah. the room and I'm thinking this is probably what we need to do we probably need to sort of package him and take mm. him around the corporate boardrooms of the UK and say actually it isn't just about you making sure your you know staff don't bring in you know, single-use plastic, it's actually grasping this really, really thorny, difficult issue that we're all facing as a planet and, and, and getting behind it and doing something yeah. now. You know, you can't wait. There's time's yeah. not on our I mean, side. What, what's interesting about the psychologist's findings um, was that to affect behaviour change, you do need some anxiety and you need some awe as well. Um, so they... they they packaged up artworks in different areas, and one is the do-goody artwork. You know, a community gets together, they make something out of flowers, they drink a soup, and they go home. And there's a lot of push for that kind of art practice, mm -hmm. which, where the it has to be a positive action at the end. It has to be a positive a statement that's that's been generated but they found that was quite ineffective in terms of psychology so this is where these findings could be quite important is actually you're getting to the bottom of this what changes people's behavior absolutely because it almost comes back to that victorian kind of growing middle class thing mm -hmm. you're there with artworks that perhaps get quite a visceral reaction from people who go and engage with art. But perhaps those very same people are the people installing their wood-burning stoves, which is a symbol of perhaps, you know, um, middle-class kind of progress and those sorts of things, the way they want to create their homes. How do we deal with that tension? Yeah. 
And I think for me, I mean, you raised earlier, again, the sort of history of working with materials and being true to sort of natural mm. materials. And designers like that a lot, mm. you know, the idea of, of beautifully crafted uh, products that we, that we cherish and we keep forever. But if I use your lovely, I call um, scenario of mattresses in, in rivers, you know, I mean, typically if you, if you put designers in a room, they would, if, if they looked at mattresses, they would love the idea of a sort of, you know, a very natural wool and a very high quality and you would live with it forever because it would, you know, be regenerated or whatever. And it would probably be very expensive versus, as you described, Michael, a, arguably a more sustainable mattress is one that a, a company could actually create for the growing number of homeless people yeah. that could be used, um, could be relatively cheaply used and also could be stored and not end up in a river. And that's a very different design proposition, which is not about beautiful designer goods, but arguably has a much greater sustainable impact. And for me, again, it's at that gritty end of life really which for me is much more fascinating and much more creative yeah and it's about building in longevity isn't it and i think that perhaps what we've done so poorly over the last few years is we've gone down that route of everything being disposable and it isn't just plastics it's everything isn't it the inbuilt life cycle of all of the goods that, that we purchase which means we don't build to last so people do mm. throw things away. And, and that's a challenge for designers. It's a challenge for artists as well, isn't it? Because we, as you say, we've got to be made to feel really uncomfortable about the actions that we're taking, perhaps before we take the ch make the changes we need to make. I mean, you have with the white goods or with TVs, for example, they used to break down in the 70s all the time. And the computer monitors, they never break down now. But it's moved from a kind of square format to a widescreen format, from a TV that's deep to one that's shallow. And a lot of people have TVs in their attics that then they sneak out into the rubbish eventually <laughs> because they feel really guilty. The TV still works. Mm -hmm. um, there isn't even an excuse that it doesn't work anymore. And that's a kind of technological fashion device that's creating new demand all the time with no idea of what's going to happen to the products that that are getting replaced absolutely you've been listening to planet pod um we could talk for hours about this i feel this might be episode one with an episode two to come but but we're due to wrap up so i just like to say a huge thank you to my guests to lynn and to michael and to julie for co-hosting and thank you to breakthrough funding for um making the pod possible before we go, can I ask you for a call to action? I mean, what would you want people to do as a result of listening today? What's the one thing they could do to, to, to change? Um, my bugbear at the moment, talking about air pollution, is air fresheners. Okay, no more air fresheners. Michael? Don't drive your children to school. I had a feeling you were going to say that. Just do not contribute to air pollution. Julie? Have a wood-burning stove, but you've got central heating, so just don't use it. Just look at it. <laughs> <laughs> this is it. They have a beautiful object that is useful and beautiful, but don't use it. So only half of that, that maxim about beauty and use. Um, I'd like to say a massive thank you to Jim, who's our producer, without whom we'd be lost. He is both beautiful and useful, um, and we're very grateful to him. Planet Pod is brought to you by Ackle Management and the Planet Mark, and we really want you to get in touch. So please do follow us on Twitter, so at planet underscore pod or visit the website theplanetpod.com um, where you can download previous ep episodes and you can also subscribe to this 
It's been a fascinating discussion. I mean, I think the overall sense is that there is so much more to say about this, but we need to be challenged. We can't be complacent. And while we're seeking beauty, we also need harsh realities. So that's a, a message to leave you with. So thank you again to my guests and do join us again soon on The Planet Pod. Mm-hmm.